So I, we were having lunch a little bit ago, uh, me and some guys, and we were talking about starting the Mo thing, Men of Element. And it was Donald Whiting's idea. He actually goes, we should call it Mo, Men of Element. So that's what we did. And then we just started, I don't know how we started just calling women, Men of Element, like, whoa. But you ever walk past, like, a women's bathroom? It's like, whoa. Because they all go to the bathroom packs. So like, ten come out when they, I don't know what you're thinking. I'm just, that's all I'm saying. There's, like, a lot in there. Whoa. Hey, if you're new, welcome to Omit. There's, oh, look, a Bible. There's a Bible in the back. Just one. So if you need a Bible, I need a drum roll. That's what I need. Yeah, all right. There's a, there's, do we have more than just one? There's a, a Bible in the back if you need one. Hopefully we'll have more if there's more of you that want one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There's sermon notes on all the communion tables around the room. There's shorter sermon notes this morning because we're finishing up our series. Uh, and that's really it. Why don't you guys stand there? Reading God's Word. Amazing, huh? Look, I got don't have ten announcements of my own. This is John 10, 27. And it says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we as your people ask that you would teach us to be those who listen to your voice and who do follow you, who long to be like you as our great God and live with your strength in and through us so that you're glorified by everything that we do. Amen. Have a seat. So this, again, is our last in our series called The Missing Words. Next week, we're going to start the Book of Lamentations. I think the Book of Lamentations starting next week is very appropriate uh, because it is one of the most depressing books in the Bible. You know what happens next week? Time change. And I lose an hour of sleep. I'm going to be in a bad mood, but that's okay because we're starting Lamentations. (laughs) Prepare yourself. All right, but to finish off today, I'm going to recap a little bit just in case you are new and you're like, this is the weirdest place I've ever been in my life. That's all right. Now, there is a way of teachings that rabbis used to use in Jesus' day and still today where they wouldn't say an entire verse or statement of Scripture. They would leave a lot left out. It was a technique that was used so people would think through what was said and also hear what was not said. A student would do the hard work of figuring some of the things out which were underneath what was said so they would get to know the full meaning and intent of a lesson. This is not not meaning that Jesus always does this. It does not mean that you're supposed to go out and find all the hidden Bible codes in the Bible or some freaky thing like that. It is simply a way at times to say more with saying less. Most modern preachers have no idea how to do this, including me, because we talk forever, but that's okay. When I actually wrote this message, my brother uh, sent me a text. It was near my niece's birthday, and this is what the text said. Orchid Brew, Tuesday, 6.30, Sierra's B-Day. That's what was said. Now, what was unsaid was, you better go get your poor niece a present or it'll beat you up like when we were kids. See, so there's a whole lot that's not said. That's kind of like the missing words, but Jesus are a lot more spiritual. If you have a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. I want to finish off this series, hopefully, in a way that will help us understand better what it means to follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Uh, as, as we talk about this, these aren't necessarily so much missing words for the people of that day. They're kind of missing words for us because we've lost the whole idea of what this means. Matthew four eighteen through 20, it says, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Now, if you read that on the surface, you think, well, that's a little odd. They got a job, they got their own equipment, and Jesus says, follow me, and they throw down everything and just say, okay, and they do. That's weird, right? Someone, Jesus, someone shows up to your job and goes, hey, why don't you follow me? And you're like, yeah, I quit. And you just follow some guy you never met. That'd be really, maybe some of you guys hate your job. It's like, yeah, I'm a crappy job. Yeah, I'm done. And, and you walk out. 
Now, I've told you this before, that the Jews believed that the Torah, the first five books in the Bible, they were everything. They were life. And so rabbis always were trying to figure out how early you could teach a kid the Torah. In the Talmud, I told you this also, that writes this, Under the age of six, we do not receive a child as a pupil from six upwards, accept him and stuff him like an ox. They believed that education wasn't a luxury or an option. It was the key to survival. Now, a key to survival is like this. There's a manual for the Peace Corps. And if you were going to go to South America, they have a section in it called What to Do if Attacked by an Anaconda. This is useful information if you are going to South America. Now, we live in America, and we have a lot of freaky pets. So I've read stories where there's anacondas that people own in America. So this is probably good for us to know as well. So these are the instructions, the key to life if you're going and you get attacked by an anaconda. Number one, if you're attacked by an anaconda, do not run. The snake is faster than you are. Okay. Number two, lie flat on the ground. This seems stupid. Okay, number three, put your arms tight at your sides and your legs tight against one another. Number four, the snake will come and begin to nudge and climb over your body. Number five, do not panic. <laughs> number six, after the snake has examined you, he will begin to swallow you from the feet end. Always from the feet in. I guess that's good to know. Number seven, the snake will now begin to suck your legs into its body. You must lie perfectly still. This will take a long time. Okay, number eight, when the snake has reached your knees, slowly and with as little movement as possible, reach down, take your knife, and very gently slide it into the side of the snake's mouth between the edge of its mouth and your leg. Then suddenly rip upwards, severing the snake's head. Number nine, be sure your knife is sharp. Number ten, <laughs> number ten, be sure you have your knife. All right, words. These are like, oh, words, key to survival in life. The Torah, they believe, was kind of like this. It was so central that if you lost it, you lost everything. It's like, don't forget your knife. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews 4.12, it says, The word of God is living and active, is sharper than any double-edged sword. It separates the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. That's how important it is. So at six, a Jewish kid would go to school for the first time, probably to the local synagogue, local rabbi. And the first level of education that they would get was called Bet Sefer. Bet means house, Sefer means the book. So it's house of the book. And this lasted until about the student was about 10 years old. And what did they learn? Torah. That's it. Torah. That's all they learned. Sometimes rabbis, they would take honey and they place it on a kid's finger. And they would taste the honey as they read the words of the Torah. So they would associate that the words of Torah are sweet. They're the most exquisite thing that I can imagine. And they would associate those two things together. And so the students would memorize the Torah. By the age of 10, most kids knew the whole thing by heart. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, memorized. All memorized. You ever notice when Jesus is teaching in the New Testament, he seems to think everybody knows the scriptures. He quotes a verse or a phrase from a verse and he thinks everybody knows it. He's like, you've heard that it was said. Over and over and over he does this. Matthew 5.21, 5.27, 5.33, 5.38, John 8.54-59. You have read. Over and over and over, he says this. If you lived during this time, you didn't have your own copy of the text. The printing press wasn't invented for 1,400 years. Your own entire village could probably only afford one copy, which had been kept in the local synagogue. And there's a good chance you would only see the scriptures after this education once a week. And that's when they were brought out of the Torah ark and read publicly. So memorization was important. It was the key to life. And so they did this so they could meditate on God's word. They would have it in them. 
Now, obviously, after this memorization schedule for kids, someone start to show a natural aptitude for it, right? Like most kids in school show, uh, oh, I'm good at math, or I'm good at PE, I'm good at eating lunch, you know, something, something like that. They have a natural aptitude for certain things. Some had a natural ability for the scriptures. The students with great ability, the best of the best, went on to the next level of education. This was called Bet Talmud, House of Learning. And this lasted until they were 13, 14, 15 years old. And what they would do, because they'd already shown themselves good to memorize the Torah, they would then memorize the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. By 13, 14, 15, the top students had the entire Old Testament memorized. Genesis through Malachi memorized. I can't even remember most of your names, but they had the whole thing memorized. It's amazing. But what about the people who don't make it? What do they do? Well, they would continue their education as well, but they would learn the family trade. If your family made sandals or, or made wine or were farmers, you would apprentice with your parents, some distant relative, maybe somebody in your village that took you in if your parents were dead, and you learned a trade. You would get a real job, as people like to say to pastors a lot, get a real job. And this is important because rabbis who train kids had no interest in having students just spit back information at them for information's sake. They wanted the kids who went on farther and farther in education to learn it, to have it deep down inside of them, to know the scriptures. They want to know if kids understood it and if they wrestle with it. I got a friend, his name is Luke, just turned 21 years old, and he sends me things all the time. I always get this, hey Aaron, when can we sit down and talk about the sovereignty of God? Hey, Aaron, I was reading the book of Zechariah, and da, da, da. And he's always sending me these questions. I'm like, and you want me to text you an answer to these questions? It's kind of, but he's always doing this. It kind of reminds me of this. They, they would also study the art of asking questions, of oral traditions, of things that surround the text. Because you had a verse, but then you had all the things that had been said about that verse from all these different people who had discussed it and wrestled with it and then commented on it. There's a mountain of oral tradition. The Babylonian Talmud is volume after volume after volume of people commenting on the text. So as a student, you would learn the text, but you'd also be learning what, who said what and whose name about the text. Now, this notion is very hard for you and I to get because we think of education as the transmission of information. The better a student is, the better they will be able to produce the right information at the right time when you give them a test. It'll come right back out. For rabbinic education, the focus is on questions. They wanted to make sure that a student could demonstrate that he understood the information and then could take that a step further. They would always answer questions with questions. If you ever read the scriptures and you look at Jesus, it's like, why does he always answer a question with a question? Because that's how rabbis would teach. That was how they got people to think deeper about the text. So at age 13, 14, 15, only the best of this last crop of kids, maybe two out of 500, maybe two out of 1,000 are still studying. By, by now, most of the kids are out learning the family business, starting families of their own. And if you made it to this point, you would then apply to a well-known rabbi and try to become one of his disciples. This is the word Talmudim, try to become one of his disciples. But being a disciple is much more at this point than being just a student. The goal of a disciple wasn't to know what the rabbi knew. It was to be just like the rabbi. A student would present himself to a rabbi and say, I want to become one of your disciples. Before a rabbi would say, okay, he would grill this person. He would ask them questions about everything because they want to know, can this student do what I do? Can they spread my teaching the way I understand it? Can they spread my yoke? Can this kid be like me? And so the rabbi again would grill the teenager because he wanted to know if this kid could one day do what he did. If the rabbi, after asking all these questions to a kid, believed the kid did have what it takes, he would say the words, follow me. Follow me. 
The student would then leave his father and mother, leave his synagogue, leave his village, his friends, and devote his life to learning to do what the rabbi did. He would follow the rabbi everywhere. He would learn to apply the oral and written law to situations. He would give up his entire life to be just like the rabbi. You ever see this old movie called Young Frankenstein? Right? Gene Wilder gets off the train. He... If you're a little older, you've probably seen it. You're younger. You're like, I don't know what that is. It was in black and white. I don't get it. Okay. So uh, Gene Wilder gets off this train because he inherits this Frankenstein castle. Igor shows up, the, the hunchback, and he's got this limp. And, and he goes, where am I going? And Igor goes, walk this way. And he goes, and so young Frankenstein goes. But that's exactly what a student of a rabbi would do. If the rabbi was like, the student would be like. And he'd go everywhere the rabbi went. There, there are actually cases of rabbis even today who will go to the bathrooms. The students will follow them into the bathroom because they don't want to miss anything the rabbi might do or say. Oh, he doesn't squeeze the Charmin. Ah, I guess I shouldn't squeeze the Charmin either. <laughs> now keep your finger in Matthew and then flip over to 1 Kings 19. Rabbis found their model of relationship between two of Israel's greatest prophets, Elijah and Elisha. I know it sounds like an 80s singing duo, but they're not. They're prophets in the Old Testament. When Elijah goes to Elisha, this is how it happens in 1 Kings 19, starting in verse 19. You guys are like, I need tabs in my Bible. That would be so much easier. Just get a smartphone. Zing. You're right there. It's beautiful. 1 Kings 19, starting in verse 19. So Elijah went uh, from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he was driving the 12th pair. He himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Now, what this is, is he throws his mantle upon him. He takes his cloak and says, you are going to be like me. That's what, that's what this means. He doesn't say anything, simply throws his mantle of prophet upon Elisha. Elisha's probably dumbfounded, like, I don't know what's going on. And then he runs after him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? Now, some people read this to thinking Elijah feels really bad about taking Elisha from his family. They're like, oh, what have I done to you? That's it's not really what it means in the Hebrew text. It's like he's like, me? I'm not the one that called you. God did. What have I done to you? You know, that's, that's literally what it is. So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. And he set out to follow Elijah and became his attendant. Elisha gives up everything. Everything. He goes home, makes a farewell meal with his family and friends. The meat he cooks over his own plowing equipment. He burns his past behind him. And he spends year after year after year with Elijah. Not just academic learning. This is transformation of his life to be just like his teacher. Now go back to Matthew. Hopefully you stick your finger in four. Leave it there. We'll come back to that. But flip over to chapter eight. It should be like a page or two to the right. This is what Jesus expected from his disciples. Matthew 8, 21 and 22. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Now, bury my father is not just let me kiss him goodbye. This is, I don't know when he's going to die, but so let me just watch over him until he does. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. That's the kind of devotion it meant to be a disciple. At the age of 30, when rabbis generally begin their public ministry and training of disciples, on Matthew chapter 4, go back there, you find Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee. Matthew 4, 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. This is important. Why are they fishermen? Because they're not disciples. That's right. They weren't good enough. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. 
Now, why did they drop their nets? Why would they quit their job for some rabbi they probably never met? Right, given the first century context, it's totally clear what's going on. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be one of these students that the goal of your life was to be able to be a rabbi and teach people and understand the scriptures? To have a rabbi say, come follow me, you can be like me. Of course you drop it. You drop everything to go follow this guy because the rabbi believes you can do what he does. He thinks you can be like him. Go to verse 21 of chapter 4. Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. They can be between 14 and 20 years old, and their dad is not angry that they're leaving. Hey, you're leaving all the work to me. Their dad is like, thank God, a rabbi called my kids, and he's totally happy about this. Jesus takes some boys who doesn't make the cut, and he changes the course of human history with them. That is what our God does. Being a disciple, it is, it is terrifying, it's exhilarating, it's demanding. You never know what your rabbi is going to do next. But in their souls, they needed to want to be like Jesus. Everything that they needed to want to be like him. Why? It's because of this. Jesus calls you, follow me. And you're like, okay, oh, I want to follow Jesus. I get to be a disciple. And the next thing Jesus does after that is he goes and he calls a tax collector, a traitor to your country, someone who embraces a foreign government who's oppressive, that keeps their heel upon your people. And not only does he have a meal with this guy, meaning friendship and peace, but he also tells this guy to follow him. Jesus is about humbling his disciples because they may think, oh, yeah, he chose me. Those other teachers, they were morons. Jesus must be really smart. And then Jesus goes and gets the biggest moron you can think of and calls him to be his disciple. It's very humbling. Jesus is always surprising and challenging his disciples. He challenged how they looked at God. He welcomed sinners that other rabbis would have scorned. And the process of change as they live with Jesus takes a very long time. It was not fast. It was not easy. But it was their commitment to follow Jesus that saw them through everything. He is passionate. Jesus is funny. He's quirky, unpredictable. He tells stories. He laughs. He goes to parties. He never stops asking questions, never stops pushing his disciples. It never gets easy. Now, remember the story of Peter walking on the water? All right? You get that? They think it's a ghost, and they go, oh, no, it's Jesus. And, and in Matthew 14, 28, G- Peter says, if it's you, Lord, tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus is like, all right, come out, let's go. You know, it's weird. Peter jumps out the water, and he starts trying to walk on the water. But it makes sense, because if you're a disciple, and you see your rabbi walking on the water, what do you want to do? Walk on the water. Only one of them in the boat did it. And they're thinking that Peter's he's a little crazy. And he gets out, he takes a couple steps, and then he starts to sink, and he yells, save me. And what does Jesus say? You have little faith, why did you doubt? That's what Jesus says to him. You've got to understand, if the rabbi calls you to be his disciple, he actually believes you can do what he does. What seems to frustrate Jesus to no end in the scriptures is when his disciples lose faith in who God calls them to be. It's not a self-esteem thing. This is a trusting God thing. In John 15, 16, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. See, the entire rabbinical system, it is based on the rabbi having faith in his disciples. And God gives us strength to be able to be those disciples. A rabbi would only pick a disciple who he thought could actually do what he was doing. Matthew 17, 20 and 21, he replied, It's because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And this is not faith in faith. This is faith in what God can do through his people. 
many places in the accounts of Jesus' life, he gets frustrated with his disciples. Is it because they're incapable? No, it's because of how capable they are. He sees what they could be and what they could do, and he sees when they fall short. Because it's not their failure that's the problem. It's the greatness that he has called them to and strengthened them with his spirit to be. They don't even realize what they're capable of. At the end of his time with his disciples, Jesus has his final words for them. He tells them to go to the ends of the earth and make more disciples. Matthew 28, 19, and 20 says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And then he leaves. He sends his Holy Spirit to guide them, give them power, lead them. But essentially Jesus places the church in their hands. He, he doesn't micromanage and show up every two days to make sure they don't screw it up. He sets it in their hands, gives them a spirit, and he's gone because he trusts they can do it. He places his bride in their hands. I believe that God believes his people are capable of amazing things when they follow him. When they follow him. You and I have been invited to a great thing. We have been invited to follow him. You in your life may have been told that you're not smart enough or creative enough or you don't have much to offer. But Jesus believes you can be one of his disciples. He believes you can follow him and live like him. You and I need to be people who really believe in Jesus because in a sense, Jesus believes when he gives you a spirit, you can do it. You need to have faith in God because in a sense, God is faith in who he called you to be. There are great parallels for us in scripture with this. Like Elisha and Elijah, Jesus places his mantle upon you by laying his Holy Spirit upon you so you can have the power to be like him and walk in his strength. Jesus and his disciples, it's just like that because we are never called to think of ourselves as better than anybody else. We are called to have fellowship with all people, eat, be friends with, pray for, the best for, all people, everyone around you. You should be in a gospel community. You should be in a small group. Sign up in the back. You should go do that. And like the entire early church following their great shepherd, they, they lived and walked in this humbleness. We are to live and walk in humbleness, knowing that our great God came as a servant to show us how to live. Following Jesus is more than just mere words. It's more than simply inviting him into your heart. It's living and walking in the ways that Jesus would. It is being like him. Because for many people, you are the closest glimpse of Jesus that they will ever see. And because of that, you must ask yourself a couple questions. Personally, you... If people understood and watched your life and they understood that Jesus called you to follow him in this context, that he believes that you can be like him, would they be convinced that Jesus is loving, that he is gracious and patient and kind and full of life and hope because you are? Would people be convinced that your rabbi knows the best way to live out the scriptures because of how you live out your life and how I live out my life? Would they know that God is alive and active in the affairs of men because of how you follow him? That's the question. I mean, the real question really is, do you believe and follow? Or do you merely say that you believe and follow? In Matthew 8, 19 and 22, Jesus says, And the teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. I want to be your disciple. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Are you willing to follow even when you feel like God's not blessing you? Oh, God's not thinking about me that much. Are you willing to follow even when it's hard? Now the disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go bury my father and mother. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Are you willing to leave your old life behind? Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? 
I will show you what he was like who comes to me and hears my words and put them into practice. He was like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck in that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Matthew 7.21 Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. John 6, 28 and 29. They asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? How, what are these works? How do we get eternal life? Reconciliation, becoming your disciple, hope, peace, mercy. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. He says it three times in that section in John. He says it to the crowds, to the synagogue, to the disciples. Salvation is an issue of belief, faith. Nothing we can merit on our own. Salvation is a gift. We don't earn it. But you know what you do with it? You live it. And you live it by following Him. Jesus Christ comes, Son of God, Son of David, Son of Man. He pleases the Father. By faith in Him, we have relationship with the Father. We don't do anything other than believe. Faith, trusting Jesus, and out of that comes relationship with God. Follow, belief, follow. The real question is, do you believe and do you follow? Or do you merely say that you do? That's the question. Guys, I hope you possess what you say you profess. A life with Jesus is never easy, but you will never know true life until you really follow him in this context and what that means. He believes you can do it. I mean, again, this is one of the reasons we bring you to communion every single week. Because communion is the place where we realize that he died and rose from the dead so we can be a people who truly have the ability to follow him. That our sins are forgiven. We are washed clean. His spirit fills us so we have the strength to follow him. That's why you take that cracker and you break it like his body was broken for you and I. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice that reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and I so we can be this redeemed people. The band's going to come up do a couple songs. And as they do, I invite you to take a moment and ask yourself, do you believe or do you merely say that you believe? Because they're two totally different things. Do you follow? Uh, there'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you guys need some prayer about this, if you feel a little lost, if you're like, I, maybe I just say that I believe, but I don't really believe, pray with them. They would love to pray with you. There's offering boxes on the side walls in the very back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship, so we give that opportunity every single week. And then there's some food in the back, and hopefully you guys can then connect with each other. Again, that's why the food's there. It's not just to feed you because there's not enough for that, and if there was enough for that, there'd be like two of you that could eat, and no one else would get anything at all. But, there's, but we put it back there so you guys can actually mingle and eat some food, get to know some others. Being involved in the community that God calls us to. I mean, Jesus even trained his disciples. He doesn't do that individually. He does it in community. He had 72. He had 12, and then he had three. It was always done in some sort of community. We, are, we grow in community, following our great God. Do you follow, or do you merely say that you do? That's the tough question. But it's a question that needs to be answered, because your whole life will start to move forward from the answer to that question. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we, as a people, ask that we would be honest enough to say, if we really follow, we merely say that we do. Father, I ask for the people in this room that they would possess what they profess and that that would, in turn, begin to make a difference 
in the world around us. That your name would be lifted up and would be made great. And that we, as your people, would be those who live and walk as you did. Who honor those around us, who pray for those around us, who stand at many times for, for what is right and what is true, as you did when you chased the money changers out of the temple. There are so many things that are wound up into the greatness and the goodness of who you are. And for all of eternity, it seems like we will only scratch the surface. But I do ask that we would scratch the surface. And our hearts and lives would change and honor you. And that our whole lives would be devoted to following you as our great God who has come to save us not because we are so great that you needed us, but because you are so good that you save us. Thank you for loving us the way that you do. Amen.